Well, we have finished the thousand-year reign of Christ. We're actually going to be kind of in a, a weird time frame between two realities. And let's just pick it up in the notes. Let's build some context. Then we'll read the passage. So in your notes, here's the context for today. This is kind of where we stand. Man has failed in every arena possible. So mankind's track record is zero wins, 100% loss. And I'm not talking about individual men or individual women. I'm talking about mankind. So mankind failed when there was only two walking around, Adam and Eve. They continued to fail through the time of the patriarchs, where Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob were, were God's representative to a growing nation. They, they failed again during the judges, when, when God uh, raised up armies to defeat their enemies and, and made them promises that, that if you serve me, I'll make you a great nation. But if you worship other idols and commit spiritual adultery, I will, I will let you be overrun by your enemies. We, they failed during that time. Mankind failed during the time of the kings with, with David and Solomon and, and on down the line. Mankind failed when Jesus showed up and showed himself to be the Son of God and, and presented an opportunity for, for everyone to be saved. They failed because they killed him and put him on a cross. And then mankind failed again in the future, will fail in the millennial kingdom where in, in living in the, the most perfect conditions since the Garden of Eden, a huge portion of, of, of the human population will reject Christ. And so we failed during that time. So our record is failure, 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 failure. But God, number two, God has triumphed on behalf of mankind in each of these areas. When Adam and Eve sinned, God brought them a covering, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you 900 years to, to figure out life and to repent, and your children can repent. I'm not gonna, you're not going to experience death right now. It'll be somewhere in the future, and you have a chance to be reborn and, and rejuvenated. He worked through the judges. He worked through the kings. Of course, Jesus came, and, and the defeat that, that was earthly defeat, him dying, was actually his triumph because he became the sacrifice. And he paid the price for sin so that ours can be forgiven and theirs could be forgiven. Uh, Jesus Christ is alive and well right now in the church age. He is, tri he is triumphant in many lives. The, the church is vibrant. His word is alive. So he's, he's triumphing now. And in the millennial kingdom, there will be, there will be many, many, many more, I believe, who, who put their trust in Christ than those who don't. So man fails, but God triumphs. That's kind of the backdrop of everything. And we need to just be reminded of that. In our passage today, where we're at right now, number three, God has triumphed in finality over Satan's sin and physical death. At the end of the thousand-year reign, when, when Satan is released and the army gathers to fight against God and fire comes down from heaven and destroys the army, that's it. Remember, Satan is snatched away, and he's thrown into the lake of fire. There's no reason not to think all of his demons are also thrown into the lake of fire at that time. 
So Satan and his demons are now in the lake of fire. That is their final destination. They will never be released to, de- to deceive again. They are, they are just there. There's no more death because as every, every person has been established. We're going to see uh, the new heaven and the new earth, which means the old is gone. So all these things are gone. Physical death is gone. You'll never get old anymore. You'll, you won't die of old age. You won't die of disease. You won't die of injury. God has triumphed in finality over all the things that, that work against him. So number four, which we're going to read about today, but I'm going to kind of tell it to you now and we'll look for it. The universe is gone. And, and I meant the universe when I said the universe. The universe is gone. We're going we're gonna to read a phrase that indicates that it, it dis- disappears. Like it is literally gone. So Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, all these stars out there that we talk about that we try to send our rockets to to look at, it, it's all going to be gone. And the new creation is about to be revealed. So the, the text we're going to read today, these several verses, three or four verses, literally take place between the destruction of the universe that we live in now and the revealing of the new heaven and the new earth. They take place where? With God. God does not need a location to exist. God does, does not need land to stand on. He does not need air to breathe. He does not need time or space. God is, and, and we will all be with him during the verses we're going to read. So just put that in your mind for a minute and let that soak in a little bit. We'll take it one step further, number five. All of mankind will be together in one location at the same time for the very first and very last time ever. So, every human being that has ever existed will be in one place, standing before God, in the passage we're going to read. It's never happened before, because all of mankind never existed. You might say, well, Adam and Eve were all there was, and they stood with God. Yeah, but the entirety of the human race will be together all at once, in one place, whatever that looks like, before God at this place we call the white throne judgment, the great white throne judgment. So here's a sequence of events, just to make muddy waters more clear. Sequence of events in your notes. There's the thousand year reign of Christ, which we've talked about. After the thousand year reign, there's the final battle where Satan comes and deceives again, and he gathers forces to come fight against Satan. The final battle takes place. That's when the fire comes down and consumes all that gather. Then the earth is destroyed. After the earth is destroyed, there's the white, the great white throne judgment. And that's what we're going to talk about mainly today. After the great white throne judgment is the new heaven and the new earth. We often call that eternity with God. So eternity with God begins after that. Now that's for the believer. That's the, that's the sequence for believers. Number two, for unbelievers, it's exactly the same, except their final destination is hell. Their final destination is hell. They will be at the great white throne judgment. They will also be present in their, in their eternal bodies with their eternal souls. They will be rejoined together into that personhood. And their final destination will be hell. Let's, with that context in mind, let's read the passage. It's not very long. Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. So then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no more place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So we're just going to take that one phrase at a time, one verse at a time. We're going to refer to our notes and then look back at Scripture. So as I refer to the notes, the verses are marked. You can look back at the Scripture. But let's just take it one phrase at a time. So verse 11 starts with, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. It's interesting that him is not identified. Because we're supposed to know who him is. We're supposed to be able to decipher who the him is. And we can, to a point, maybe not with certainty, but uh, we'll clear that up. So in your notes, him, it could be Jesus. You remember earlier in Revelation, the lamb, looking as if it had been slain, came and took the scroll from the Father and joined him on the throne. I don't know if you remember that passage, but that took place. So Jesus has a place on the throne. So it could be Jesus who also has been ruling for a thousand years on earth from a throne in Jerusalem. It could be that in this encounter it is Jesus himself sitting on the throne judging. That fits perfectly with Scripture. There's no issue with that being the case. It could also be God the Father. Because God the Father has, has had the throne in heaven for as long as time and energy and space and matter have existed. And, and he has ruled from that throne. He's been in charge. And so there's, there's no reason why it can't be God the Father. So if you want to see Jesus on the throne, that's great. If you want to see God the Father on the throne, that's great too. There's no issue either way. But there is a third option. And the third option is the one I, I like. The third option, and you fill this in in your notes, it could be the Godhead or the Trinity. It could be the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God in, in his entire essence, God, God as the Godhead three in one, sitting on the throne, which makes a lot of sense because this is the final judgment. There is no more work for the Holy Spirit to do in the hearts of those who may believe. There's no more work for the Holy Spirit to do in helping people make a decision, helping them move down the path correctly, helping them grow and learn. Jesus has done his work. He has been the sacrifice. He has ruled from the throne in Jerusalem. He's done everything he was asked to do. And so it very well be that they come together, and it's, it's, it's God Almighty, the, the full essence of God on the throne for final judgment. And if we don't want to split hairs, Jesus is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So any one of those answers is really the same answer. God is sitting on the throne. When it says, and I saw him who is sitting on the throne, it's God. The very next line, I see him sitting on the throne. I see God sitting on the throne. And it says, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. What does it mean to, to fled from the presence? Think of disappeared. Like, I can't find them. They're nowhere to be found. 
They're, they've disappeared. They've fled from his presence. Where is God's presence lacking? Nowhere. God is omnipresent. So if the, the earth and the heavens have fled from his presence, they're no longer there. So in your notes, this is a reference to the destruction of our current creation. It's a reference to the, to the destruction. So we can chronologically put it right there. Then if we want to skip ahead a little bit and, and, and kind of validate that, chapter 21, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Heaven, earth, and sea. The, the, the ground, the sky, and the water. Everything that we have. Uh, everything we have. The sky, the earth, and the water. It's all passed away. The new heaven and new earth. So I, I read verse 1. It says, The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. That's the destruction of the earth. And now, everyone who's, who's going to be at this great white throne are in existence in this place where God is, but not, not on solid ground, not, not in this time-space continuum. So we move on in our notes, verse 12. Verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Who are the dead, the great and small? Well, notice it doesn't say the believing dead, or the unbelieving dead, or the Jewish dead, or the Gentile dead. It, it, there's, there's, no, there's no split anywhere. There's no defining any term. It's just the dead. What's their description? Great and small. The powerful and the weak. The important and the unimportant. Every, everyone's there. The dead. So what is this in your notes? It's every person who, who has ever lived from Adam to the destruction of the earth. Every single person who's ever lived, the dead, are present. It says the books were opened. What are the books? How many books are there? What do they look like? I don't know. I, I, you know, we have thoughts about what these books look like, and the more I read, the more my thought expands. What are the books in your notes? The books were opened, the record of every human's deeds, good and bad, who did not trust in Christ as their Savior. That's the books in verse 12, and the books were opened. So God has a record of every deed, good and bad, every sinful deed, in particular, in these books. And that's what we'll be judged on. That's what the unbeliever will be judged on. Okay, and then it says, but there's another book, and it's called the book of life. What's in the book of life? This is the record of every human's deeds, good and bad, who did trust in Christ as their Savior. And, and I said good and bad because we're still judged on our deeds. And now sin has been forgiven, so sin has been removed out of the picture. So I'm not saying your sins, I'm not saying that, that believers will be judged on their sins, but believers can do really good things and can do things that in comparison to the really good things really aren't that good. A believer can ignore God's call, God's direction, God's nudge. A believer can fail to pray when they promise to pray. A believer can do things or not do things. A believer can be called to a ministry but never do it. A, a believer can live a life as a saved person but not live the life God's called them to live. 
And so that's the bad. I, I want to define that. It's my word. That's not God's word, the good and the bad. But we are judged as believers on our deeds as well. But the sinful deeds aren't there because they're forgiven. They're removed. They're, they're cast to the deepest sea, separated from God as far as the east is from the west. So one set of books, and it does say books, it's a set of books, has the, the, the deeds that will judge those who are unbelievers, and then there's another book that judges the deeds of those who are believers. Also in verse 12, on the other side of your notes, it says, The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And verse 13 adds, Each person was judged according to what they had done. So there's still no separation between the believer and the unbeliever. Everyone is judged by their deeds. So let's clarify a little bit. Number one, unforgiven sin sends people to hell. It's not a number of sins. When you cross the magic number, you go to hell. It's not the severity of your sin. When you commit a number eight level sin, now you go to hell. It's sin itself. So the sin we have, any sin for that matter, all sin for that matter, our sin is what sends us to hell. And then the severity of their experience in hell is determined by their deeds. So these deeds don't determine if you go to hell. They literally determine what hell will be like for you. Which means that there are various levels of severity of suffering in hell. So if you've had an issue with someone like Hitler or Stalin or a mass murderer getting to be right next to the nice fellow from across the street who both went to hell, and you think one deserves more than another, well, God agrees with you. And the one will suffer more in hell than the second. It doesn't mean that hell is going to be pleasant for anybody. The nice person who does not believe in Christ, who rejects the offer of salvation and goes to hell, will suffer for eternity. And their sins will torment them. But there is a severity, and it, it says that, the, that the, how their, what their condition is in hell will be determined by their deeds. Number two, likewise, having no sin on account, or on the books, having no sin on account allows people into heaven. So because we're sinless, in the eyes of God, we get to go to heaven. The forgiveness of Jesus Christ makes us holy and righteous before God. He sees Jesus Christ when he looks at us. He ushers us into heaven because we have no sin that would send us to hell. So it's not our good deeds that get us to heaven. We don't do 25 good things and earn level 1 of heaven. And then 100 good things to earn level 5 of heaven. We either are going to heaven or going to hell. It's all based on our sin and what has been done with it. If I have to pay the price for my sin, I do it in hell. If Jesus has already paid the price for my sin, then I don't have to pay it and I get to go to heaven. Okay? Second half of number two, the grandeur of the reward they experience, believers, is also determined by their deeds. So, the, the Billy Graham of the world, the saint so-and-so, the person who has lived their life, 
the one who served behind the scenes their entire life, whatever God has called you to do, if you are faithful in that calling, then God will reward you according to the calling. Those who, we might say, barely get in, I, I played the lottery, I waited until I, just before I was about to die and I accepted Christ as my Savior, they will go to heaven. They will experience a wonderful experience throughout eternity with Christ. But the one who served God with their life, made sacrifices, was generous, was loving, was kind, shared the gospel, was involved in ministry, that person will have a greater reward. It makes perfectly good sense. The Bible talks about jewels in the crown. The Bible talks about mansions. The Bible talks about ruling over hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands. There will be a, a reward system where the most faithful will get the most rewards. That the 12 apostles will likely be the ones sitting on the 12 thrones that we read about in earlier in Revelation. And, and this makes sense. There's no issue with it. Sin will either send us to hell or forgiven sin will allow us into heaven. And then we will be judged according to our deeds. Unbelievers will be punished. Believers will be rewarded. Okay, that's the great white throne. Every living person will be present, and that's what will happen there. I don't think it'll take God that long. We might say, wow, there's a lot of people. That's going to take forever. Not for God. I think it's going to be pretty quick. Verse 14. Okay, verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So what is death in Hades? That phrase is a little tricky. Death in Hades. Well, it means this. Number one, everything still existing relating to death is thrown into the lake of fire. No one's going to die anymore, so there is no death. Hades, well, let's, let's read the notes. I wrote it in here. Number two, death was what sent someone to Hades. Hades was where they awaited final judgment. Neither are now relevant, so both are destroyed. There's no death, so there's no need for Hades. Judgment is taking place. So there is no waiting place for judgment, and no one's dying. They don't need anywhere to go. So everything that is still remains associated with death is just destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire. It's no longer relevant. It no longer exists. Number three in your notes, the second death, which takes place in the lake of fire, that's what was said there, Second death is the state of spiritual existence. So it's a spiritual awareness. It's related to your relationship with God. Second death is a state of spiritual existence in which you are 100% separated from God. You remember we talk about God being light. We talked about in the thousand-year reign, it, it seems like there's no sun. It says there's no night. And it's just, so the light of God may be very well what's producing light for the earth. Well, in the new heaven and the new earth, it says clearly that God's light is, is filling the new earth. And, and God is light. Where God is, there is light. Where God is not, there's darkness. God's light that he's producing will not reach into the lake of fire, will not reach into hell. It's described as eternal darkness, the darkest of darkness. That is the separation from God. Since God is life, then you are spiritually dead. 
even though you are physically alive and suffering. We talk about our resurrection, and, and we joyfully talk about our resurrection because as a believer, we want to be resurrected. If, if I don't get taken in the rapture, which would be super cool, by the way, if I don't get taken in the rapture, I want to be rotted away. I want every molecule, molecule of my body to be disintegrated into the dust. And I hope that I get to be reborn or reformed from that state. I want to feel that gush of energy as I come back together. And then I, I go up to heaven and, I, and I'm joined with my soul. And I will have an eternal body that is perfect. It will not go wrong. It will not get diseased. It will not die. Joined together with my soul that has already been the new creation since the moment I accepted Christ as my Savior. And I will live with Christ for eternity. We don't like to talk about the other side of the coin where an unbeliever will also be resurrected. They will also receive an eternal body where there will be no age, there will be no disease, there will be no end. They will have an eternal body that will be joined together to their eternal soul which has been saved, not as we say saved, but as in kept has been kept, joined together, and that eternal body with their dead soul that they brought with them will go to hell for eternity. And they will physically suffer in hell. That's why it's a really big deal to share Christ. It's a really big deal to at least make sure people make a decision on their own to follow Christ or not follow Christ. So the second death is that spiritual existence where you're 100% separated from God and you're still suffering physically. And then verse 15 says, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a restatement of verse 14 for effect and clarity. This is how it should be read. I'm going to read verse 14 and 15. Listen to my voice. You'll get it. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. Anyone whose name is not found in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. You hear the emphasis? You hear the pay attention in my voice? That's how this should be read. The writer here is saying, I'm serious. It's a lake of fire. Anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. God's not going to miss. No one's going to escape. No one's going to no get lucky. And so, so we have a situation where it comes right here in this passage. It's clear as day. There are only two choices. Heaven or hell. And it's not God who makes that decision. It's me. And it's you. I will choose to follow Christ, have my sins forgiven, and spend eternity in heaven. Or I will choose not to, and I will die in a state of unbelief, and I will get what I chose, I'll get what I asked for, and I will spend eternity in hell paying the price for my own sin. If you're, if you're, ever, if you're the kind of guy that looks for a deal, which I'm always looking for a deal, it's a good deal. God can pay the price for my sin, and I get a free ride to heaven, or I can pay it for myself for eternity in hell. It just, it doesn't make sense to say no to that. But it has to be your heart's desire. It has to be what you believe. So here's the question for the day. 
How and when will my will a name be recorded in the book of life? How and when will my name be recorded in the book of life? Well, when is easy. It's the very moment that you put your trust in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I don't, I don't know how it works necessarily. I don't know if there's a stamp that goes over your, your sins and it says paid in full or, or God somehow erases everything after your name and, and then cuts and pastes into the new book. I, I don't know how it works, but the Lamb's Book of Life has the name of every believer in it. And your name is entered the very moment in time you accept Christ as your Savior. And so you're good. How does it happen? Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved is that moment in time. Declare with your mouth. I'm going to say out loud. Uh, you know, you don't say things out loud in public that you don't believe. You know, I'm not going to make a political statement I'm not willing to take flack on. I'm not going to make a, a religious statement. So I'm, I'm going to say out loud, I'm going to say to God, where God can hear me and anyone else who's listening, I'm going to say, Jesus is Lord. We don't use that term a lot, so I should know what it means. It means that Jesus is, was God. He was the Messiah. He died on the cross for my sins. He has the power to give me salvation, the power to forgive my sins. And, and he gets to be in charge. It's, it's, a, it's a package deal. It's not that he's my new best friend and he does what I want him to do. It's not that if he likes me in the end, it'll work out in my favor. It's that I am I'm giving myself to him, saying, I, I don't want my sin to send me to hell. I, I, I cannot deal with this on my own. I realize that. I've done a lousy job so far, and it doesn't look like a better future. I'm going to trust Jesus to do what he said because he's proven himself to be God. And I believe that. So I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart God raised him from the dead. If we don't believe God raised him from the dead, we don't believe anything. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, he can't do anything. He's just dead. He's just dead. But if God raised him from the dead, then he has power over death. And power over sin, he is who he said he is, and he can forgive. So if you here today have not accepted Christ as your Savior, if your name is not yet written in the Lamb's Book of Life, or anyone that's listening online when it gets put out, here's a sample prayer. It's not hard. There's no magic words, but here's what it sounds like. Jesus, I, I know I'm in need of a Savior. I cannot solve my own problems. I cannot escape what sin has done to me now or in eternity. Please forgive my sins right now as I acknowledge you as God and Savior. I will serve you as my Lord and will strive to grow in my relationship with you. Thank you for dying on the cross, raising from the dead, and offering to me forgiveness of sin with no required works on my behalf. I acknowledge your gift with open arms and an open heart. Thank you, Jesus. Those aren't magic words. It just communicates what we've been talking about. Your words should be your words, but there's a sample. And if those words work for you, and you mean it from your heart, you can pray that to God. And here's the cool thing. He always says yes. He never says, no, not right now. Maybe later. I already saved four people today. I don't want to build up any over, you know, I don't want to overrun heaven. I've got to take account. He says, right now, yes, I forgive you. Thank you for asking. You're now in my family. I've adopted you. And, and now you get the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to help you. 
So if that's your heart, I encourage you to pray that prayer. Do it on your own. Do it with a friend. Talk to someone. Have them explain it to you. That's the challenge. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our time today. Thank you for your word and how clear this is about heaven and hell being the only two options. There are no others, so we better figure it out and get it right the first time. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. And, and if anyone here has not accepted you as their Savior, they continue to work on their heart. Continue to call them. And maybe today's the day. Thank you for everything you've done for us. I pray that we can ponder these things and, and they can sink into our hearts and minds and they can mold our thinking and, and allow us to serve you better in the future. In your son's name we pray. Amen.